All right, we're back in Hebrews. Back in Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is better than or greater than what? Angels. Yes, he's also greater than the boogeyman for all you VeggieTale fans. That'll be a separate lesson. Um, Yeah, Jesus is greater than angels. And what was the application to that? Because Jesus is greater than angels, what should we do? Anyone remember? Yes, we need to pay all the more attention. Because if we would pay attention to the message by angels, we should pay even more attention to a message by Jesus, the Son of God. Um, And how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's what we looked at last week. And this time we're going to be jumping into the rest of chapter 2 and continue to see how Jesus is greater than anything. You know, sometimes for an application, when you're teaching a lesson or you're hearing a lesson, applications can come in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes an application for a lesson is go and do this, right? Obey by doing this deed, this action. Um, but other times the main application of a passage isn't do something, but it's think about this. So you know, that's an appropriate application for a lesson sometimes. Not necessarily go do this, just think about this. Believe this. Dwell on this. And we're going to see today, that's the application for the passage in front of us. That, that the writer wants us to take this passage and think about it. To consider it. Okay? Um, We saw that Jesus was better than angels last week, and because of that, we're supposed to pay more close attention to the message of Jesus, because how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And as we pick it up in verse 5, we we read through chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 last week. We pick it up in verse 5, we see, we find out that he is about to show us how great that salvation is. So in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? From 5 onward, he's going to talk about how great is that salvation exactly. Let's find out. That's what he's going to do. Because you see in the beginning of verse 5, look at it. Verse 5, what's the first word, depending on your, on your English version? What's the first word? Four, right? So it's giving the reason at the beginning. He's giving reasons for why this salvation is so great. Four. And then he continues on. Okay? And we'll read the passage in a moment, but I want you first to skip down all the way to the beginning of chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. What is the first word there? Again, depending. Therefore, therefore. So again, after chapter 2, after we, every, what we're about to read is concluded, he says, therefore, here's the application. Okay? So in other words, chapter 2, verse 3, he introduces this great salvation. says, how should we escape if we, should, if we neglect such a great salvation? And then verses 5 through 18, that great salvation is described in great detail. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, great salvation is applied. This is, how you, this is what you should take away from considering the great salvation. Look back in chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to read it, and then I want you to tell me what is the application Um, that we need to take from this verse. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest 
of our confession. What is the application? What are we called to do in that verse? What's the command? What's the command in that verse? Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, those who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. To consider Jesus. To consider Jesus. Okay? To consider Jesus. Now, the word consider means to think carefully about. It means to envision, uh, to think about, to notice, right? It's like picturing something in your head, taking a mental picture. The author says, I want you, based off of what we read in chapter 2, to consider Jesus. Take a mental picture of Jesus and his work and his work of salvation. Consider every aspect of the plan, what he went through, how he suffered, how he died, and why he did it. Think carefully about it, envision it, let it sink deeply into your soul. That's our application for our lesson today. Think carefully about Jesus. We're not telling you to go do anything. We're not telling you to go follow, the, you know, follow these steps. We just, the application is think carefully about Jesus. Envision him. Let the goodness and love of Jesus sink deeply into your soul. That's what we're going to look, about, look, look at today about Jesus who we're going to see in our passage, is the founder of our salvation. That's who Jesus is. And we're going to look at, in chapter 2, it it lays out the whole plan of salvation in an incredible detail, and we're going to dig into it, all right? So let's jump in as we seek to consider Jesus from our passage. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 5 through 9, he's going to talk about the problem, the problem that we're in as human beings, why we need salvation in the first place. And he starts off by saying that we were created, human beings were created for a glorious purpose. Um, whenever, I hear, whenever I when I wrote that, I, all I could think of was Loki for you Avengers fans, burdened with glorious purpose. That's not what we're talking about here. Sorry for erasing all these awesome drawings here. Last week, we looked at a hierarchy of creation. Do you remember that? We have God, creator of all things. What's below God? Angels. Good. What's below angels? Humanity. All right, humanity. And then what's below humanity? Animals, Animals creation, right? Anything like that? All right, man. All right, so there's a hierarchy. And we looked at that, and Psalm 8 is the chapter that really lays that out. And in verse 5, he's going to go back to that hierarchy. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse 5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him, speaking of mankind, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So here in these verses, we see God's great glorious plan for humanity, men and women, his, the apex of his creation. What did he set up man to do? What's his glorious purpose for mankind? Um, let's actually go back to Psalm 8. Okay, So let's go back to that original passage where he quotes from 
to see in greater detail what our purpose as people in this world is. Okay, Psalm 8, Psalm 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established and strengthened because of your foes and to, to still the enemies in the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds and heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we see in Psalm 8 that mankind is made a little lower than the angels, and mankind is crowned with glory and honor. So God has crowned us with glory and honor and given us dominion over his creation. When did God give dominion to mankind over his creation? Yes, Adam and Eve. At the very beginning, in John, not John, Genesis one twenty-eight, when he created man and woman, he said, he blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, we've been created, in other words, to be kings and queens over this world. We're supposed to have dominion and authority over all creation, reflecting the image of God. And this is a privilege that not even angels possess. Right back in our passage in in, in Hebrews 2, it says, To which of the angels has he said this? It's not to the angels that he gave this command. He gave that dominion to people. And that's our glorious purpose. But, do you feel like you have dominion over all creation. No, it doesn't quite feel that way. Can you guys give me some examples of um, ways in which you don't feel like you have dominion over creation? Yeah, that's a great example. When a hurricane comes, you're very much at the mercy of creation, aren't you? Yeah, Bill. Well, crops, they don't grow for you sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, you can prepare, you can plan, but at the end, it's, you're really, in many ways, at the mercy of, of the seasons, of the rains coming, of fertile soil, all that stuff. Yeah. The mosquitoes come out. <laughs> the mosquitoes come out. Isn't that crazy? How the smallest, tiny little thing can exercise such dominion over you, you know? They, 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 they just, they, they rule us. They're our overlords. Yeah, face to face. Yeah, you won't feel very dominant in that moment. Yeah. You can't stop a bird from biting you. <laughs> Josie, she nurses her, her bite. How's that going, by the way? Okay, that's good. Yes. Yeah, so, so we, we see painfully that, that we don't have dominion over everything. In, in, our, in our passage, it says, in verse 8, near the end, it says, He's left nothing outside of mankind's control. And we're like, wait a minute. I, I, we don't feel like we have total control over all creation. I'm pretty sure I can think of one or two things in creation that are outside of our control. And this is where we see that we've horribly fallen short of that purpose. That, that really, if we're looking at this um, hierarchy, we can look at a lot of examples in which this is flip-flopped. Right? Um, that, that, that the creation actually has dominion over us. And guess what? In Hebrews, the author feels the exact same way. 
Look at it. Verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, right now, in the moment, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So, so we, he set up, set up the purpose, the purpose of creation. But he says, but right now in the moment, guess what? It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't seem that way. It seems like it's actually flip-flopped, right? And it's actually really interesting. If you look at the, 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 the original sin, the serpent coming to, man, to Adam and Eve, you almost have an illustration of creation exercising dominion over mankind. The snake, the serpent exercising dominion over humanity. And this is what happens when, when Adam and Eve sins, and now the whole creation is under the curse of sin, and this hierarchy is thrown into chaos. We do not see all of creation under subjection to mankind. This is not how it was in the garden. Um, if you can, turn, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Okay, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is after the flood. Okay, so... At, uh, mankind was created, fell onto sin, and then you have later Noah, and then the world becomes evil, and God judges the world with a flood, and they're on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. The water recedes, they come out of the ark, and God gives Noah another mandate. We saw the mandate in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. We see another mandate in Genesis 9, but there's something that's suspiciously absent. Okay? Look in verse 1 of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Period. Okay? What did he leave out there? Have dominion. Now, we, we still have, that, we still have the, the role as being over creation, right? He, had, he didn't remove that role from us. But it's almost as if he left that part out in this re- repetition when he's basically starting fresh with Noah and his family. He starts talking about this new relationship between mankind and creation. And that same dominion just isn't there anymore. While, while we're still called to be fruitful and multiply on the earth, there, there's this painful reality that their complete dominion and authority over creation is no longer possible. And like we just saw, we saw this painful reality all around us. Severe weather, we, we mentioned that, often has dominion over us. We can try to prepare. There's this realization that the mercy of the weather, we're at the mercy of the weather patterns and the storm fronts, especially here in Florida, right? Na- nature is harsh and scary. There's severe cold, there's severe heat, there's destructive storms. They all exercise dominion over us. We don't even have complete dominion over animal world anymore. Good luck trying to have a lion for a pet, right? That's not a smart thing to do. Um, try negotiating with a grizzly bear. Not a smart thing to do. Try swimming in a piranha-infested river. Not a smart thing to do. Our dominion over the animals is incomplete. Right? We still exercise it, but, but there's this chaos that has been entered in where we, can't, we don't see everything in subjection to mankind fully. How many times have you felt that you don't even have dominion over your own soul? Felt like that before? The curse of sin that has impacted all of creation seeps down into your own heart. Your sinful impulses are strong. 
Your desires feel irresistible. You feel enslaved to your own sin. You see it in, in the weather. You see it in the animal kingdom. You see it in your own heart that, that we don't even have complete dominion over our own souls. Sin has, has wrecked everything. All of creation is groaning. Romans 8, 20-23 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but our own selves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So to say, as he says in in Hebrews, we do not see everything in subjection to mankind yet. Seems almost like an understatement. We're in bad shape, right? I'm in bad shape. You're in bad shape. We look at this world and we don't like what we see. But look at the next verse. Look at verse in, in Hebrews 2. Look at the next verse. Because this is when he swivels. And he starts talking about the good news. So we've seen the glorious purpose. We've seen that we've fallen, horribly fallen short of that purpose. But verse 9, it says, But we see him who was for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by gr- the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here's the problem. We were created for glorious purpose. We fell short of that. And we need a Savior. Enter the, and Jesus enters the scene here. He says, we see Jesus. Yes, Jaden. Um, what is a covenant? What's that? What's a covenant? A covenant? That's like a special promise. Yeah. Um, we see Jesus enter the scene. And look how he is described. Verse 9. We see him who was made a little lower than the angels. Okay. That's how humanity was described. How else is he described? Crowned with glory and honor. We see him described, uh, we see mankind described that way too. So in verse 7, we see mankind described as lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. And then we see that we don't have subjection that God has called us to. But then Jesus enters the scene and how is he described? Lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And what is Jesus doing? Why did he come? Why did he take on the role of mankind to come into our world? It says he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Every pain, every temptation, Jesus leaves his heavenly throne to come experience it. He experiences death, the worst consequence of the fall, and he willingly takes that on. This is the answer to the problem. And so let's look at the plan. What did Jesus do? What did God the Father do to rescue his people that have fallen woefully short of our purpose? Verse 10, we're going to see that God orchestrates a plan. Verse 10, it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was necessary for whom and by whom all things exist. Who's that? That's God. In bringing many sons to glory, that's his goal, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. All right, pause. Jesus had to be made perfect 
wait a minute, I thought Jesus was perfect. What in the world is this talking about? Does anyone, what, what do you think it's saying there when it says that God, in bringing many sons to glory, had to make Jesus perfect through suffering? Is that saying that Jesus was imperfect? I've seen some heads shaking, and that's, that's correct. We, 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 Jesus is, is God. He's perfect. He's holy. So what do you think he's saying here when he says that Jesus had to be made perfect? Any ideas? Okay, and, and what does perfect mean in that? He, yes, but wasn't he that already? Because this says it had to be made perfect. Like he had to become this. He wasn't, and then he had to become this. Yeah. Um, he wasn't, he's perfect, but he wasn't complete for his particular purpose and role of carrying our sins. And he needed to be a sacrifice, and that was why. Okay. So, in other words, in order for him to take our sins, right, he had to meet some qualifications. He to go through the process. Yeah, okay. Rachel. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of that process, right? So he had to be made perfect. We could say he had to be completely qualified to be the founder of our salvation. And in order to be completely qualified, he had to take on some things. He had to go through some things. It says here in this passage, he was made perfect through what? Through suffering. Suffering was the process that he had to go through for him to become this perfect sacrifice. We see this idea in two other passages in the book of Hebrews. All right. Jaden, make sure you're not talking and giggling back there, okay? You need to pay attention. All right. Two passages, Hebrews 5, verse 9, and Hebrews 7, 28. We see this idea mentioned there. Here's Hebrews 5, 9. It says, He being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Later on in, in chapter 7, verse 28, it says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Okay, so this is what he's saying. Perfect isn't referring to his moral character or to his holiness. It's referring to his role as the founder of our salvation. It was through suffering that Jesus became the perfect source of salvation. Suffering is what qualified him to be the founder of our salvation. In other words, he wouldn't have been the perfect sacrifice if he hadn't become a man and experienced suffering and temptation yet without sin. So here in the same book of Hebrews, we'll see later, that the author clearly says Jesus was without sin. But he went through suffering and temptation so that he could be made perfect, totally qualified to be the author of our salvation. We see Jesus who descends, who comes down as God and becomes a man. And this is what happens in this plan. All right, so God orchestrates the plan. And because he identifies himself with his people, this is how he sees us. This is so cool. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus sees you as family. Verse 11, so he was made perfect through suffering, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, Jaden, last warning, buddy, okay? Sit still, no more kicking chairs, pay attention, all right? 
He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So, verse 10, verse 11 says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Who is he who sanctifies? Who's that? God, specifically, Jesus. Who is those who are sanctified? Us, right? So, he who sanctifies, Jesus. Those who are sanctified, us. All have one source. That means they're all in the same family. So, because Jesus took on flesh and blood, he stands in solidarity with saved humanity and sees those whom he sa- who he saves as his family. I mean, think about this. We see Jesus as our Savior, but do you also see him as your sibling? It says he is not ashamed to call them, those who are being sanctified, not ashamed to call them brothers. Have you ever been embarrassed to be identified with a sibling? (laughs) Someone asks you, hey, hey, is that your brother? Is that your little brother? Is that your little sister? And you you mutter under your breath with shame, unfortunately, yes. Get this, all right? Get this. You have been redeemed, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He looks at you... The sinner that you are, and without a bit of embarrassment or shame at all, says, that's my brother, or that's my sister. We could say, Jesus is proud to call you family. Because Jesus came down, took on flesh and blood, because he came to save us. He's the author of our salvation. And he he became one of us. So that those who are sanctified, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all in the same family. He sees us, those who call on him for salvation, sees us as his family, as his siblings, as his brothers and sisters. You know, it's really cool. When you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he, he doesn't refer to his disciples as brothers until he rises from the dead. In Matthew 28... Verse 10, this is after the resurrection. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Once the salvation work was complete, those who are being sanctified are united with the one who sanctifies. They are family. Skip down in our text to... um, Verse 16, verse 16 of chapter 2. For surely, it's not the angels that he helps, right? Going back to this hierarchy, did Jesus leave heaven to help the angels? Nope. He skipped down to humanity. It was not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, if he's going to help, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
again, we see him describe us as his brothers. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. What makes Jesus the perfect Savior, the founder of our salvation? In part, it's the fact that he was made just like you and was tempted just like you so that he could be your perfect helper in your temptation. Jesus is the founder of our salvation because he took on flesh and blood, the eternal God in human flesh, so that he could be your perfect helper. Jesus suffered with you so that you so that he could be your faithful high priest. Jesus came all this way so that you could be his brother or his sister. Now, I want you to think back to the beginning of chapter 2 where it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We're starting to see how great this plan is, how great the salvation plan is, that everything Jesus had to go through to make you his own. How can we neglect this? How can we just cast this aside as just, oh, that's your idea of, 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 of salvation. That's your idea of faith. This is, this is so huge that either you accept this wholeheartedly, you embrace this for yourself, or you cast it aside and throw it in the trash. And we see the application from the end of chapter 3 for all this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus, think about him, picture him, envision him. Jesus isn't a theory or an idea for us to diagram or dissect. He is a person to cherish and treasure in love. Is there someone in your life, maybe it is a sibling or a close friend, that you're so close to, that you respect so much, that just thinking about them makes you go, oh, man, I just love that person. Man. They're incredible. And this is the idea. Consider Jesus. When Jesus comes to mind, is that your reaction? Oh, wow. I love him. The one who is with you to help you, the one who sympathizes with you in your weakness, envision Jesus, your brother. Jesus came to earth and suffered with you so that he could be your family. And then it gets even better. We see that Jesus delivers you from death. Look in verses 14 through 15. Jesus didn't come just to identify with you. He came to rescue you. Verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, had to take, he partook of the same things, same things being flesh and blood. He, he partook of those things. He, he took those on. Why did he do that? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came not just to suffer with you, Jesus came to suffer for you. And in, these first, in just these short two verses, verses 14 and 15, the word death shows up three different times. So we see Satan, we see the devil who has the power of death. We see ourselves who are subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. 
So we have, we have weak humanity, fallen humanity, who's supposed to be exercising dominion over all creation. We're broken, we're sinful. And the devil, through the power of death, has holding us in lifelong slavery through our fear of death. We're in bad shape, we're in darkness, we, we are enslaved to our own sin, we're enslaved to our own fear. And we look at this world and we have no dominion, it seems, and, and, and it falls so, so short of what God had originally created for mankind, and we're trapped. And Jesus takes on flesh and blood so that, through death, he delivers us and defeats Satan. Okay, so death passes upon all men, because all have sinned, it says in Romans. Satan holds the power of death. So what does Jesus do? He becomes one of us, he suffers with us, and then he takes death head on. He uses Satan's main weapon against him. It's like he wrenches death out of his hand and uses death to beat him over the head by going through death himself. He uses death to destroy the devil's power of death so that we could be freed from the fear of death. This is why it says that Jesus had to be made perfect through suffering. How did he become our sympathizer, our brother? He, he, he became that through suffering, right? How did he become the conqueror, the deliverer for us out of death? Through his ultimate suffering on the cross, through his death. And this is what qualifies him to be the founder of our salvation. We saw, you know, Jesus is greater than angels. We see here in these verses, Jesus is greater than death. The ultimate consequence of our sin. Jesus snatched it out of the devil's hands through his own death. I, don't, I just want to leave, leave a thought with you guys. Um, when I was reading this passage this week, it, in, a, in a very real sense, it, it came, it felt, it felt more meaningful to me. It wasn't just reading a passage. It was, I, was, I had fun. I enjoyed it. When I, when I really dug down into these truths and I looked at, wow, and I saw what the application was. Consider Jesus. Envision him. Think on him. I mean, have you ever had fun just reading a passage of scripture? Do you ever get blown away by the truths you read? I mean, we just read a passage that unfolds the whole salvation plan from creation to the cross. We see Jesus becoming our brother and facing off with the devil, grabbing death out of his clutches and beating him over the head with his own weapon. Who says that scripture is boring? Consider Jesus. He is greater than anything. He is greater than our failure. He is greater than our sin. He's greater than death. So as we walk out of this room... What's the application? What do, we, what do we take away from this? It's really simple. Think about Jesus. Consider everything he went through. Consider how incredible it is that he looks at you without a, without a shred of shame or embarrassment and says, you're family. You're my brother. You're my sister. And I'm proud of that fact because I took on flesh and blood to rescue you, to deliver you from death and I am sanctifying you, and I am growing you, and I am redeeming you, and you are mine, and no one can take you out of my hand. Consider Jesus. And maybe sometime today, maybe even as you're walking across the street from this building to that building, take some time to tell Jesus, your brother, 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything you did. Thank you for being the founder of my salvation. Whatever struggles, whatever, whatever, whatever difficulties are in your life right now, whatever um, trials you're going through, whatever things are just dominating your thinking, take a moment, put, put a pause on those things just for the moment, and consider Jesus. Consider everything he went through. And as, and as you consider your trials and your temptations, consider specifically that he entered those as well. That he entered trials and difficulties and tribulations himself. And he is with you in those things. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Jesus is greater than anything. And he's going to continue harping on this through the book of Hebrews. He's going he's to show example after example of why Jesus is greater than anything. But he starts off here in chapter 2 just laying out the whole gospel plan. And, and, and you, we have to ask the question, right? And I have to ask the question for, for, for those that have been raised in church and have heard the gospel, maybe even made a profession of faith. Have you embraced the gospel for yourself? Is, this, is he your savior? Is he your family? Have you called on Christ, the author of your salvation, and professed faith in his name, the repentance of your sins, and asked him to save you, to be your savior, your brother? The incredible thing about this is that no matter, even though how incredibly immense this plan is, how incredible this gospel plan is, it's incredibly simple to receive. It's offered freely. It's a free gift. And you can embrace it. Even today. Even if you're like, well, yeah, I've already heard it a million times. I, I've prayed a prayer a million times. If, if there's something in your heart that's like, well, maybe, do I embrace it? Is this, my, is this my gospel, as Paul calls it? Then maybe you should take some time to consider Jesus. If you, have, if you, if you know you're, you're one of his children, don't move on from the gospel. Don't just ignore it and pretend like this is just something in the past. This is your life. And and the grace that we need to face the trials of life comes from a deep relationship with Christ. So so, so grow that deep relationship by considering what he has done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, this incredible chapter where we see everything you went through to rescue us, to bring many sons to glory to restore us. What an incredible story. It's a story unlike anything else that we can find anywhere in this world. Because this is a story that is true. It's, it's, it's the, the grand plan of redemption that you set up since the foundation of the world and that it's available to us. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone who knows that they don't believe or is struggling whether they believe, that they might consider Jesus And remember the words, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? They would receive the free gift of Christ. And and for those of us that that are your children, that have placed faith in you, help us to, to rest in your gospel, to rejoice in what you've done, and that our love for you grow deeper and deeper as we consider everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.